I had huge ideas for Nickelodeon, and people would laugh at me. I made a speech about how Nickelodeon would rival Disney. We would be the Disney of the 90s. People howled. But when I left Nickelodeon, we had 56% of all kids' TV viewing. And when we would survey kids, but we asked them a question, do you think Nickelodeon understands you? And 96% of the kids said they thought we understood them. And I would always joke that the other 4% didn't understand the question. Kids were the boss. Welcome to The Road to Why by the Northern Trust Institute, a show where business owners, entrepreneurs, and visionaries discuss their life's work and explore the intersection of business, family, wealth, and legacy. I'm your host, Eric Chapea, Director of Business Services at Northern Trust. Growing up in the 80s, I watched a lot of Nickelodeon. You can't do that on television, Double Dare. I don't know if you remember Mr. Wizard. It was a great science show. So I'm really excited to introduce our guest today on our inaugural episode of The Road to Why, serial entrepreneur and television pioneer, Jerry Laybourne. As president of Nickelodeon, Jerry helped turn what was essentially a tiny cable network for kids into a multi-billion dollar television empire. Later, she went on and founded Oxygen Media with Oprah Winfrey and legendary television production company, Carsey Werner. Jerry has way too many accolades for me to cover in a single podcast, but I'll list a few for you. She's been listed among Time Magazine's 25 Most Influential People in America, Fortune Magazine's 50 Most Powerful Women in American Business, and in 2020, she was inducted into the Television Hall of Fame. Jerry's current focus, because she's always keeping busy, is the city of Poughkeepsie, New York, where she has co-founded Day One Early Learning Community, which is a project aimed at creating a model for early learning opportunities for children. A recurring theme of my discussion today with Jerry is going to be this idea of letting kids be the boss. And I think our conversation will be insightful for, let's say, business owners who are looking to groom the next generation of leadership for their company, but really also anyone who's hoping to raise children who are grounded, who are responsible stewards of the wealth they might inherit from the family, and who are motivated to pursue their own passions in life. And by the way, this is a key challenge that we work with for many of our clients. But before we dive into those insights, I thought it would be interesting to explore Jerry's own upbringing and talk about some of the early influences in her own life that shaped the person she is today. I was the middle daughter, sandwiched between my older sister, who was absolutely beautiful and perfect, and my younger sister, who was brilliant and charismatic. And my dad looked at me and said, honey, you're going to be my business daughter. And he made me treasurer of the family when I was five. My mother had been a radio actress, producer, writer for CBS radio. And of course, in, in the 50s, you had to give up your career if you were a woman. And she had four kids, really, overnight. Everything about our childhood was creative. We were making meatballs and fresh bread, and she grew up on a farm in North Dakota, so we were outdoors all the time. And she instilled in us the values of the community, that education was the first important thing. And 
my father's values were you have to make money and provide for your family. So I got the creative community, do good things for others from one side. And you know what? You're going to be my business daughter. And I'm probably the only 10-year-old who ever memorized all the New York Stock Exchange and American Stock Exchange symbols. What's a great combination of, of business and creativity. Were you a troublemaker as a kid? Were you a good kid? I was a very good kid. And I was a little bit shy, but I was deeply funny. I've always been just so hilariously funny in a very, you know, subtle way. You'll see if I get funny at all. I can attest to that from our, our prior conversations. So growing up in the 50s and 60s was when television really came about. And obviously you've devoted your career to television. Did you know right away it was what you wanted to do? Well, my mother told a story that when I was three, television was delivered to our house. It was a big wooden box with a teeny little screen. And the guys plugged it in. And my mother said, well, hello, television. And the television said back to her, hello out there in television land. And so as a three-year-old, it's like, holy mackerel, this box can see us. So I would dress up for my favorite show, Hopalong Cassidy, and I would weep because I was so worried about Hoppy. And my dad would sit there with me and hold my hand and say, honey, he's coming back tomorrow. Don't worry. He's going to be fine. That's a good segue to your career path. How did you go from watching Hopalong Cassidy as a child to running Nickelodeon? What was that career path like? It doesn't sound like it was a straight line. I was going to be an architect, and I went to Vassar College, which taught me everything about questioning everything. But I met my husband in my first weekend at Vassar, and he was much older than me. He was a friend of my sister's. He saw she's way too young for me. And he didn't call me back for four and a half years. And he called me back and he said, hi, this is Kit Laybourne. You don't remember me. And I said, don't remember you. I've been waiting by the phone for four and a half years. And he came over and we fell head over heels in love and got married four months later. And I just watched this man who was really innovating in schools with kids who couldn't read or write in high school. And he was teaching them how to make movies. And it was so exciting to me to see these kids come alive who had been discarded. And so I went and got a master's in education. And then we taught in a private school for a year. And I got involved in nonprofits of trying to really understand what kids were all about. And I got excited about this independent film community. These are people like Jim Henson, who had characters living inside them. Oh, by the way, we had two kids in the interim. And I just didn't like what was on TV for kids. And then there was this wonderful Mr. Rogers, but it didn't come on until 4 o'clock. And Mr. Rogers seemed fantastic to me. So I did a lot of research. I wrote a book. 
And I met a lot of independent filmmakers, and I started a production company called Early Bird Specials with a magnificent animator, Eli Noyes. And that's what connected us to Nickelodeon. We were the first production company that Nickelodeon contracted with. And Nickelodeon had nothing when we joined them. And during our production, they hired me. And that's how I got there. You show up at Nickelodeon, I think it's 1980. It's a small network. Fast forward 15 years later, you leave Nickelodeon. It's won Emmys. It's ingrained into my personal childhood. I think the network was worth around $10 billion when you left. Can you talk to us a little bit about the culture at Nickelodeon when you arrived in 1980 and then what you built there and the creativity that you harnessed, which I think was a bit controversial at the time, but that, in your words, contributed to that ultimate success? I was hired on a day when they hired a new boss for Nickelodeon, and he came out of the advertising world. And so he had very old-fashioned ideas about management and about kids, but he hired his old friends to make shows like Reggie Jackson's World of Sports or Against the Odds, which my son called Little Tragedies on Nickelodeon. And we were so not building a culture of creativity. And I kept a notebook of, if I get a chance to run this place, here's what I'm going to do differently. And he believed in trusting your old friends, not being open to new people, never telling anybody at Nickelodeon what we were trying to do, and not having high expectations for kids or for the business. And I had huge ideas for Nickelodeon, and people would laugh at me. I made a speech about how Nickelodeon would rival Disney. We would be the Disney of the 90s. People howled. But when I left Nickelodeon, we had 56% of all kids' TV viewing. And when we would survey kids, we'd ask them a question, do you think Nickelodeon understands you? And 96% of the kids said they thought we understood them. And I would always joke that the other 4% didn't understand the question. Kids were the boss. And we had a group of people who were incredibly talented. And My background as an open classroom teacher was so fantastic for running a company because an open classroom teacher has to find out what's good about each kid and help them learn through that window. So when they let me run Nickelodeon three years later, I had 20 employees, and they said, if you're going to succeed, you're going to have to decide who you let go. And so come back tomorrow and say who you're going to let go. And I go through the list, and it's like seven people don't really want to be team players. So here's my seven. And I never had to really fire anybody at Nickelodeon after that. And honestly, I've never worked with people who taught me more. You have a great line that you mentioned the last time we talked, which I think is part of that story and part of your overall story, which was you said, don't let adults mess up what kids are doing. And it sounds like that was key 
or one of the keys to the environment that you created at Nickelodeon? I am disruptive, but I couldn't stand it that we got to have so many employees and everybody was concerned about what meeting they were invited to. And so I instituted at 3 p.m. we had to have recess and nobody could be in their office and nobody could be working. Everybody had to be in the hall and had to be talking to each other. And I don't know, maybe that lasted two months, but it was great to just have, remember, we're doing stuff for kids. If our process isn't fun, if we're not playing to learn, our kids are not going to be playing to learn. I mean, everybody thinks Nickelodeon was so fun and exuberant. What was a kid going to learn? Kids learned plenty. They learned about sticking up for each other. They learned about diversity. Our shows were so different from the shows of today, which is upsetting because we know that kids need to see that diversity is a positive, not a negative. So kids had the final veto power at Nickelodeon. I mean, you can't do that on television, which was our first hit. The kids, if they didn't like a line, they wouldn't say it. And it was such an empowering thing for that cast. We invented slime at You Can't Do That on Television because we didn't want kids to get uppity. They were in Ottawa, Canada, and they became little celebrities. But you can't take yourself seriously if you get slimed. I know that. I've been slimed. <laughs> it's funny. I, I watch that show all the time. And at that time, I couldn't put my finger on why I was so drawn to the show, but I think it has to do with the fact that it was so geared towards kids, more so than something dropped in their lap. It also was like, you know what, it's not that easy to be a kid. That's one thing that really shaped us. At that time, kids were being hurried to grow up, and there was the phenomenon of the hurried child. And they needed a place where they could just be kids. And we did two shows at once, Spread Your Wings, and you can't do that on television. Spread Your Wings was a co-production with the CBC, and it was picking perfect kids who could do everything perfectly, draw, music, whatever. And it was like we gave kids a checklist. Well, I'll never be able to do that because I'm not going to be that good. And you can't do that on television, on the other hand, was, oh, my God, my parents aren't as bad as that. I'm so lucky. My teacher doesn't send me to detention in a dungeon. That's fantastic. So anyway, you can tell I love kids. In 1996, after 15 years spent disrupting and evolving the DNA of children's programming, Jerry finally said goodbye to Nickelodeon and took a senior executive position at Disney. But Jerry had bigger plans for her contribution to television, and just two years later set out to co-found her own network with legendary television production company Carsey Werner and one of the biggest names in television, Oprah Winfrey. I loved Nickelodeon. I loved the people at Nickelodeon. I loved the audience. And I felt like my company would never see that I had 
the ability to do more than Nickelodeon. And I felt like Nickelodeon was so well-baked that nobody could take it apart. And I didn't realize, but I am not a corporate executive. I was not cut out to be one. And I remember one day Michael Eisner asked me, who is our affiliate in Toledo, Ohio? And I said, oh, no, I'm so sorry. You should never have paid what you paid to get me here if you thought I would ever know that. But I realized I am an entrepreneur. I'm about building stuff. So I left and I partnered with Marcy Carsey, who's arguably the most important producer of our time of television. She did that 70s show, Different World, Third Rock from the Sun, and always with a different point of view and a helpful point of view. And we have to do something great for women because there's no programming where women can be themselves, have their own sense of humor. And she agreed, and we sat and thought, well, how could we really ensure our success? Is there any marketing person? It's like, okay, well, what about Oprah? And we went out to meet Oprah, and three months later, she came back and said, I'm in. And it was a miracle. We got to 74 million homes because I loved cable industry. And because Nickelodeon was so helpful for them in wiring the nation, they supported us. Well, I want to talk about family. You mentioned your husband, Kit, and how that relationship has helped shape your career path. You also had been quoted as saying, I didn't have a work-life balance. I had joyous imbalance. Can you share a little bit about what that means and how your family and your career paths have intersected over the years? With all respect to parents that are working today, they have this devilish cell phone that constantly intrudes in their family life. And I did not have to deal with that. And I never took a phone call at home. And I had real boundaries. But also, my kids were involved in Nickelodeon. We had no money. I mean, our first programming budget was $5 million for 24 hours of programming. So we shot everything in our house in Montclair, and it was a family affair. And my mother one day said, how's the business going? I said, Mom, it's great. I said, why do you ask? And she said, well, you're just not doing as much production. Well, that was because... We convinced Universal Studios to build us two amazingly great sound stages so we didn't have to produce in our backyard. You know, everybody was involved. Our kids were involved. They would cry, please, Mommy, no more TV. Let us go outside. And both of them are in entertainment today. They didn't have a choice. You know, it was too much fun. Every dinner table was about, what should we name this show? Do you think this is a good idea? Sometimes I would call home and make Sam get a group of kids because we were stuck on a show and we didn't know what to do. And, you know, it just was, everybody was involved. Well, I want to talk about your kids who you mentioned, Emmy and Sam. They are adults now and they are in the same industry. I believe your daughter is an author of young adult novels. She's a 
actress. Your son is an Emmy-nominated writer and producer and shows that a lot of us would know and that I've seen. Growing up in an environment like the one that they grew up in, was that inevitable? Did they consider doing other things in life? How was that upbringing influential in terms of the path that they followed? Well, I think it's very hard if your parents are inventing a television network for kids to not think that's a pretty cool area. But when Sam was at Wesleyan in his junior year, he came home and announced to us that he was not going into the family business. He was going to be a teacher. And I am ready to break out in hysteria. His father has been a lifelong teacher. And I started out as a teacher. His sister started out as a teacher. So he taught. And I think it might have been Sam's very favorite job ever before he went to Los Angeles. And both kids are in a creative field that I know nothing about. So Sam took the route of becoming a writer in situation comedies. And Emmy went and became a comedy improviser. Then she was an actor. Then she got a master's in film. Then she had kids and wanted to be home more. So she wrote six young adult novels for Macmillan. They're in fields that are way different from where I was, but I'm terribly proud of them. And I just want to go back a little bit because I learned a lesson about philanthropy that I think is worth sharing. Our kids mostly went to public school, and then in high school, the public school just wasn't doing a strong enough job. So we sent them to a Quaker school in Pennsylvania called the George School. And they had a very strong sense of values, which I wanted my kids to get. So when they graduated, I called the head of the school and I said, Kit and I would like to put up $100,000 for a fund that you just have complete discretion over. So he said, have you talked to Sam and Emmy about it? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, well, first of all, you shouldn't give us any money without talking to them. So we had a family meeting, and they, the kids had no interest in that. That is not interesting to us. We want there to be someone always at the George School going with the Laybourne Scholarship. So, of course, it cost 10 times what we had intended. But it was such a great lesson about get them involved early and get them committed to philanthropy and thinking about why you earn money. You earn money so you can basically bring on the next generation. And that's what I'm doing now. Jerry brings up a great point that we discuss with many of our clients. Get your kids involved early in conversations about wealth and philanthropy, and don't just talk at them. Give them a voice and let them participate in how the family makes decisions about its wealth. Spending time with Jerry, it doesn't take long to recognize that she's a person who lives with a strong sense of purpose. So I asked Jerry, what is the why that drives her to build, create, and inspire others? I think it's probably human potential. And I get so excited when people come up with brilliant things. 
and when they develop and when they turn a corner and whether it's kids or men or women, I get excited by leaning in to help them see how great they are. And it's, it goes back to what I said before. It's like as an open classroom teacher, you're trained to figure out what's great about each person. And I think that's just the why for me is how do we unlock that for everybody? And of course, because I'm concerned about kids and this, as everybody knows, this period of time after the pandemic, there's a mental health crisis in our country for just about all of us, but particularly for young people and preteens and teenagers. So the why for me is any producer who ever came into Nickelodeon, I would say, what does this do for kids? If it doesn't do anything for kids, I don't want to do it. And that was a litmus test. It's not like a you have to teach reading or you have to teach numbers. It's just tell me how this is going to help kids. And sometimes developing a sense of humor helps. Sometimes getting kids interested in helping others. We did a big campaign called The Big Help, where we gave kids the tools to help their communities. And they did not let us down. So I think that's human potential is the why. And how do we not waste it? I want to talk about day one in a minute. But before I do so, in addition to championing the causes of children, I know that you've been an advocate for women. What was it like in the 1980s as a female corporate executive in the television industry? It was fantastic. And it was fantastic because this woman who was 20 years older than I and went to Vassar College opened the door for me at Nickelodeon. And she said to me, after I got in that door, you and I are going to make this industry, cable television, good for women because broadcast has been so terrible for women. Broadcast was known for get one woman in, that's the token, and then shut the door. So every time Bernice would call me, she'd say, I'd like you to meet this young woman, Ann Sweeney. I said, send her over. Hired Ann Sweeney. She was supposed to be my secretary. She said she typed 80 words a minute. She typed eight words a minute. And I had to hire her as secretary. And she then took over the job I had at Disney. And, you know, the rest is history. She became head of ABC, Disney, blah, blah, blah. But there was this culture of women supporting women. And so if Pat Philly got to be the head of programming for Lifetime, I would call her up. I'd say, let's have lunch. Let me tell you a few things that are going to happen. And it was fun. We supported each other. We taught each other to claim ideas. If Sarah gave an idea at a meeting and somebody 10 minutes later said the same idea, I would say, thanks for supporting Sarah's idea. Or a guy would say an idea and another guy, a more alpha guy, would say it 10 minutes later. People have to own their ideas. They can't just be compliant. They have to be generative. And so you took this idea of women supporting women and you made it a, a movement, really. I think it's called the Global Women's Mentoring Walks. Can you talk to me a little bit about what that is and how that came about? 
my assistant had figured out that I always love helping women, but I couldn't afford another breakfast or another meeting. So he would tell people, if you want her advice, you have to walk with her in Central Park on Mondays and Fridays at seven o'clock. So that was fantastic because you get outside, you just concentrating on one person, you're trying to figure out how to help them get to who they are. And that was largely my practice of mentoring. So I said, hey, why don't we do that in Central Park for hundreds of women? We'll call our friends who are bankers and publishing house heads and actresses. And we got covered on Good Morning America. So we had 400 women at 7 o'clock in the morning in Central Park helping each other. And I have been associated with Vital Voices, an organization that develops women around the globe. And every year they would bring a group of 30 to 40 women from all over to sit and ask me questions. And I would tell them about Mentors Walk. And soon after the first one, a woman from Nepal did a Mentors Walk on her own. And then the next year, 10 women did it on their own. And then the next year, 50 did. And most years, we do 160 countries. And it's not a prescription. It's they can do it any way they want to. But they're always getting hundreds of women, and they're always getting press. And it's just a global effort to show that women help each other. And they do. And happily. That's fantastic. Turning back to the topic of children, can you talk to us about what's keeping you busy these days? Well, for a long time, I've been very concerned about the state of early education in this country. I got asked to be on the board of kinder care when I was president of Nickelodeon. And I said, you don't want me on your board. I'm going to hate everything you do. I'm a kid advocate. I'm going to be a cranky person. And they said, oh, no, we do want you. And what I found was it was almost impossible to make a business work because our country does nothing to support early learning. Childcare is the lowest paid profession. 98% of all professions are more. 50% of all childcare workers are under the poverty line. And as I left the business world, in 2016, I went off all, all my corporate boards. It was like, hey, I've got a lot to give. I've got a lot of energy. I've testified in Congress for kids. I am back on the warpath. And I decided to, to center in Poughkeepsie because that's where Vassar is. It had a phenomenally talented executive director who's a teacher trainer, a child development expert, a research scientist, and it's like, okay, we're going to try to prove that in one small community, we are going to train all the teachers in that community, all the child care workers, to be high-quality early learning teachers. And we're a radically different idea. We have an almost perfect record. We do small cohort training. We've trained 42 people, and all... But a few who've gone back to school and a few who've left the state, all of them have jobs in early learning, and we pay them to take the program. 
We pay them to stick with us so that they make a living wage. And it's such an exciting thing. And we started a school last September. We have 50 kids. They've all grown at least a year and a half to two years, not six months that they've been with us. And it's like to see the kids grow, to see the teachers grow, to see the parents grow. This is why we do this. You've spent a lot of time in boardrooms. You've been on the boards of a number of companies that are household names in America. What makes a good board and what makes a good board member in your view? What makes a good board is people who are very different from each other, who respect the fact that everybody coming to the table has a different point of view that needs to be heard. And one of the boards that I was on was Symantec. And we had just an amazing culture as a board where we really did deal with problems and we had plenty of them. And it was just like the cohesiveness of the group and the respect. I've been on other boards where there's eye rolling, do not roll your eyes at another board member. That is a very important thing. Really try to listen and don't assume what they're saying. Let them finish. I would say one of the most helpful people teaching me about good board behavior is a guy named Dan Schulman, who runs PayPal. He's done a magnificent job at PayPal. But he's thoughtful about what's going to happen at the next board meeting. So he will write us a letter about what we should be worrying about, what we should be thinking about. And that taking that time beforehand to alert the other board members about what's important so they don't just leap on to everything as if it's a huge issue, that to me is the best behavior. Jerry makes a great point here about boards, which I'll vouch for based on my own experience working with business owners. It's really important to bring in board members who can offer diverse perspectives on your business. Independent directors are key, but also make sure your directors come to the meeting fully informed of what you actually want them to focus on. To round out our conversation, I asked Jerry for some closing thoughts on talking with her children about wealth and the family's legacy. I just think the people that are hopefully going to listen to this podcast have probably had some of the same concerns that I've had, especially with their kids. And that's, of course, the most important thing, because they're the ones who are going to be coming along and continuing things. And the other thing I meant to tell you on that is that we decided we would give guidance to our kids about how they could spend their trust money. And we gave them a consigliere to talk through their trusts. And they still call and talk to him about issues that happen. And it's just fantastic. So 
I would say that was the smartest thing we did. First, we had a meeting with our kids and their consigliere. And then we had a meeting with our kids and their spouses and the consigliere. Because we consider our kids' spouses our kids as well. And it's a serious matter. And if you are blessed by having parents who want to give you this solid foundation to get going, then don't be afraid to talk about it, to have meetings, to, to sit down and make plans and to figure out what do you want us to focus our philanthropy on. My kids know that I'm spending a tremendous amount of their future wealth on day one. And they are perfectly so excited for me, so excited for the world. And I think as long as you make your kids part of it, they own it. That's so true. I mean, it's one of the core principles that we talk to with our clients about, which is communicate, prepare your kids for the wealth they're going to inherit or not inherit as early as possible. And unfortunately, a lot of people who've generated a tremendous amount of wealth, even to the tune of billions of dollars, procrastinate on those conversations with their kids. And then as a result, the expectations diverge from what the parent wants. So I think I'm getting a lot the parent's really giving them a little, or I think I'm getting a little, the parent's going to give them a lot. In either way, it's not a good outcome. It's unfortunate, but a lot of families, they make it a surprise where the trust is silent. And then when mom and dad pass away, the kids have this business meeting and they learn what they're getting or what they're not. And that is a great way to engender family conflict and resentment, which is the complete opposite of what the parent's in 10 beyond anything that has to do with wealth. Many of the successful entrepreneurs we work with face the challenge of raising grounded children who are motivated to pursue their own passions in life while growing up in the shadow of their parents' success and with the prospect of inheriting significant wealth. Jerry's story provides valuable insights to us on how to address this challenge, including giving your kids exposure to the business early on, cultivating their own creativity and interests, and giving them a voice in how the family puts its wealth to work. A big thank you to Jerry for spending time with us today. If you'd like to find out more about what Jerry's up to, check out the show notes in your podcast app for more details. And if you enjoyed our conversation today, please remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. And join us next time when I'll be learning how husband and wife entrepreneurs built and sold a mailbox empire as we speak with Vanessa Troyer and Chris Ferentinos, founders of Architectural Mailboxes. Mm-hmm.